probably don't know this, but just about one year from now, the world's new longest tunnel will open. You might remember 20 years ago some talks of tunneling through the Swiss Alps. Those talks turned into reality, and for the past 20 years, since 1996, workers have been hard at work to make that happen. And so next year, June 2nd, 2016, the Gothard-based tunnel will finally open under the Swiss Alps. When I read about projects like this, the scale of it all just blows me away. The tunnel is 35 miles long, literally under the massive mountain range of the Swiss Alps. You add in the other track and all the access tunnels, it's really 94 miles of track. Each tube is 30 feet in diameter, and they're bored by these massive tunnel boring machines. In total, 29 million tons of rock was excavated, the equivalent of five Giza pyramids. And I can't even wrap my mind around how much earth was moved for this project. Of course, the whole purpose was to provide a faster and and better shortcut between Germany and Italy. And you've got the Swiss Alps in the way, and you you can go around them, but it takes a really long time. You definitely can't go over them. The train is, is way too treacherous. And so your only option is to go under them to make a tunnel. But technically, there is one other option. And just pretend you're at that meeting of engineers and trying to figure out how are we going to cross or get through the Swiss Alps. And everyone's there saying, you've got to go under, we've got to build a tunnel. There's just no other choice. But then one guy throws this idea out on the table that no one's ever thought of before. And he says, why not just move the Swiss Alps out of the way? And everyone pauses and laughs. But then when they realize this guy is serious, they start to kind of jokingly, mockingly question, like, okay, well, how do you suggest we move the Swiss Alps out of the way? And he replies, well, with prayer. Why don't we just pray that God would take the Swiss Alps and cast them into the sea? And what do you think of such a response? I mean, it it sounds ridiculous. That would never happen. That has never happened. To think that we would have the power to literally move mountains, to change the topography of the planet, it just sounds ridiculous. And furthermore, what if two people have differing opinions on where the Swiss Alps should go? Which prayer does God answer? But as ridiculous as it sounds, do you know that this is something Jesus said? This is one of the more shocking or stunning statements that Jesus made and has confounded people for years. Mark chapter 11, verse 23. He said, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. First time you read this, you think to yourself, wait, is that, is that for real? I mean, can, can that be true? Does he really mean that? Or is he just using like figurative language? That, that can't be right. He, he's meaning something else, right? But if this is the case, well, what does Jesus mean? It sure seems like he's giving a, a blank check prayer promise here. And still, this verse has sent many devout Christians to the mountains in faith to pray for that miracle, but no mountains have been moved yet. So what gives? Well, this verse, Mark 11:23, it belongs to that the next passage we'll be studying in Mark's gospel, Mark 11:22 through 26, as we make our way through verse by verse the gospel of Mark. And here Jesus is going to teach on prayer. He makes some bold claims, and it's our goal, as always, to, to unpack them, to understand them, so that we may apply them. 
And Jesus has plenty to say on prayer. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus often taught on prayer. But especially in his last week, he really ramped up the teaching on prayer. This was even more the case on the night before his death. The final night in the upper room. It was like the final exam was coming and he gave them a late night cram session just teaching, teach, teaching them a lot on prayer. The text before us today is in his final week. It's no exception. We get a little glimpse though as to why he was telling them so much about prayer during his final week. And why is it? Why did he tell them so much about prayer right before the cross? Why did he pray with them in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why did he pray for them in the high priestly prayer all right before the end? Why did he tell them so much that they needed to pray? Well, today we're going to find out, but even to get you a head start, remember, at this time the disciples had a long road ahead of them, but Jesus wasn't going to be with them very much longer. They would no longer have Jesus physically present to to rely on him and his power for their work. But they still were going to desperately need his power because they were given an impossible task to, to make disciples. But just because Jesus was going to leave them, that doesn't mean he was going to leave them powerless. No, his power was going to remain available to them. God's power, the power that can even move mountains, and they could access that power through prayer. The disciples would not be left alone, nor would they be left powerless, but they would be given the gifts of the Holy Spirit and prayer. And this is still supremely applicable for us because we too still live apart from the physical presence of Jesus. We too are still faced with an impossible task of making disciples and living the Christian life. And you throw in there life's just general difficulties And we too could use that same power in our life. Yet we have the same spirit that has been given to us and we have the same privilege of prayer as well. Christians today need to learn to be just as reliant upon prayer as Jesus wanted his first disciples to be. Prayer is the means by which we access God's power in our lives to do God's work. And if God God has enough power to move mountains, I, I think it can suffice for what we have to do in our lives. So whenever Jesus teaches on prayer, it's always impactful, it's always relevant, because we're really not in too different a boat as the first disciples. We need to learn more and live out more the life of prayer. And specifically on this occasion in Mark chapter 11, Jesus, he's teaching on the power of prayer and how the disciples can access it. We, we need power to do God's work. Power is available but it's only going to be accessed through prayer. And along these lines from Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 26, we're going to find from Jesus two essential requirements for powerful prayer. Two essential requirements for powerful prayer so that you may successfully engage in God's work. When it comes to praying with power and being heard, these are two non-negotiables. We don't want to, to miss these. Two essential requirements for powerful prayer. The first is this. Number one, you must be believing. Believing. You must be believing. Let's begin by reading the first half of this text, Mark 11, 22 through 24. 
If you haven't already, open your Bibles there. Mark 11, verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Well, this text picks up rather abruptly from where we left off last time. So we're going to take a minute, refresh our memories of the context. We've now entered Christ's final week of life. At the beginning of chapter 11, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. So that's day one. In chapter 12, or verse 12, we saw him on day two come back to Jerusalem and enter the temple. And that's when the famous cleansing of the temple scene took place. Although last time, last week, we came to this significant conclusion that Jesus wasn't actually cleansing the temple. There was no reform going on. He was condemning the temple. He was cursing the temple. His actions were a living parable of the destruction that would come upon this temple and all the false worship within. And this temple, and thereby Israel's hypocritical religion, would not be reformed, but judged. And that's what God thinks of false, hypocritical worship of those who honor him with their lips but disregard him with their lives. So the cursing of the temple was the highlight of day two of his final week. But something else happened on day two, right before the cursing of the temple, and it was the cursing of the fig tree. Remember that? In the morning on day two, on the way to the temple, Jesus was hungry, And he found this fig tree and leaf, and he went to find if there there would be any fruit on it. But there wasn't, so he cursed the tree to perennial fruitlessness. And it's kind of a strange episode because nothing more is said after that, uh, immediately at least. The next we hear of this fig tree, though, Christ's curse appears to have taken effect. Now we're in day three, starting at verse 20, and they get back to that same fig tree, and now it's, it's dead. His curse worked, and it worked quickly. Look at verse 20 in Mark chapter 11. This is the beginning of day three, and it says, As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now we're not going to rehash everything from last week, but if you think that the cursing of the fig tree is related to the cursing of the temple, you'd be right. We discover that much like Old Testament prophets, Jesus purposely used this fig tree as an object lesson. When he found this fig tree that looked perfect on the outside, but inside was empty and fruitless, he knew it would make a perfect illustration of Israel and their hypocritical worship because that's what they were like. They looked great on the outside. But inside, they were dead and empty and fruitless. And so you do the math. If the cursing of the fig tree prefigured the cursing of the temple, then what does the destruction of the fig tree prefigure? The destruction of the temple, which would come to pass 40 years later. But along with it, dead religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Through his actions with the fig tree and with the temple, Jesus was communicating the same message 
that looking good on the outside isn't good enough. That doesn't cut it with God. Rather, your heart must be His if your worship is to be true. Now, this doesn't mean that hypocrisy will end. People will always carry on their religious practices, going through the motions, doing all the right things, trying to look good on the outside, although their lives bear no real spiritual fruit. But the cursing of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple, it's like God's very clear declaration that that doesn't work. That's not the way to God. That's not the path to eternal life. You can't just go through the motions and think everything will be okay. Understand, this was a big shocker for the Jews because that, that whole system was so ingrained in them, it was a part of them. If you want to go to heaven, you just have to be a good Jew. Do all the right things. You'd be circumcised, read the Torah, sacrifice at the temple, pay your temple tax, keep the Sabbath, avoid unclean items, just do all the stuff and you're good to go. But Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors make very clear that, that that's actually not good enough. You can't work your way back to God. Works is not the means of your salvation. Our human effort is not enough to reach God. Our sins have carried us so far away from God and we we can't get back. There's nothing we can do. God must remain separate from us because He is holy and we are not. And if you really think, just think about all the sins you've committed in your life. If you really think that going to church, giving some money, reading your Bible, praying now and then, if you think that's going to make up for your separation, you've got another thing coming. You can't work your way back to God by doing good deeds or even religious deeds. Ritual, tradition, even religion can't save you. Instead, what you need is a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. Though our sins carried us far away from God, Jesus came to bring us back to God by taking our sins away by Himself for us. He came to reconcile us to God, and we access that simply by faith. Jesus did the work. We do need works, but He did the work. And we merely receive the benefit by believing in Him and trusting Him and counting on Him. And so now only those who follow Jesus in that faith will be saved and find the true path to God. And for us today, we have our Christian practices. You need to realize that our practices, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, they have value. That's how we draw near to God in, in a personal worship. But that's not how you, you, you start a relationship with God. That's not the foundation for your relationship. That comes only by His grace, which is given to those who surrender their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and who ask Him not to come into their heart, but to change their heart, to forgive them their sins, to to make them new. And God will answer that prayer. He will make you new. And then you'll be like a fig tree that looks good on the outside and has fruit on the inside because you'll be spiritually alive. All this goes to say, Jesus was giving a much more serious and fundamental message with the cursing of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple that most people realize. And you really need to make sure you read that message loud loud and clear and you rightly respond to Jesus in faith. Now, technically, that was all last week. That was just a recap. 
But it's important background because the text we have today, it's a continuation from last week's passage. We start in verse 22, but that's part of the same conversation that's taking place around this dead fig tree. Now that said, in verse 22, Jesus changes directions a little bit, which is why we broke it up. And instead of talking about hypocrisy, he shifts gears and he's talking about prayer. So you wonder, why is he now doing this? Why is he now talking about prayer instead of religious hypocrisy? Well, when Peter saw this dead fig tree, what stood out to him? He was astonished that the words of Jesus carried so much power. He he was taken back by the miracle that it just supernaturally was was cursed. But here's what's interesting. We're, We're given no indication that Peter and the rest of the disciples actually learned or understood the lesson of the fig tree. In fact, I'm almost sure that they did not at the time. Peter doesn't say, hey, hey, look, the fig tree which you cursed has died just like Israel's hypocritical religion will, will perish. I mean, he doesn't get that. He doesn't say that. They didn't understand that at the time. It wasn't until after Jesus was glorified and the Spirit came that all the disciples, they looked back and they remembered and they understood all the things that Jesus said and did. But right now, what catches Peter off guard, it's not the lesson behind the fig tree, it's just the fact that this curse actually worked. Like The power of Jesus to kill this tree worked. And there was a real display of power. Just imagine in your front yard, you have this massive orange tree. It's, it's huge, it's big, it's green, it's lush, it's just thick and filled with leaves. It has oranges all over it. It's just a, a perfect tree. And you come out the next morning, and it's just dead. It's shrunk, it's it's withered. All the leaves are are yellow and curled and brittle and falling off. All the oranges are rotten. The branches are brittle. It's just, it's completely dead. And that's that's not natural. That's supernatural. Trees die, but they don't die that fast. And Christ, with this supernatural power, cursed this tree, and, and he understood that his power has caught the disciples' attention And so now he's shifting gears because he sees this as another teaching opportunity for the disciples to talk about faith and specifically about prayer. So let's look now at the text, verse 22, and see how he first responds to Peter's response about the cursed fig tree. Peter sees a tree and Jesus answered, saying to them, verse 22, he says, have faith in God. And already there's a subtle and gentle rebuke in these words. Because really, why was Peter so surprised that it worked? That that he had that much power? Did he doubt Christ's power? Did he doubt God's power? I mean, what's so surprising here? Jesus said it's going to happen. Why are you surprised when it happens? And really, withering a tree is, is rather small compared to the power that God has. And then Jesus turns it back on them. Cursing the fig tree was a display of divine power. But it was also a display of divine faithfulness because what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And that shouldn't be so surprising to the disciples. They should not be surprised when the words of Jesus come true or the power of Jesus comes true. They should come to count on God's power and God's word to follow through. They should come to rely on his power and his word and not their own. And when Jesus tells the disciples to have faith in God, that doesn't mean they have zero faith at the moment. They do. They're believing. It's just that theirs is still a little faith. 
as Jesus said elsewhere of the disciples. They, they have a small faith. It needs to grow. And so Jesus appropriately tells them to have faith in God. Place your faith in his word, his power. And I think we need the same reminder. Even us who are, we're believers, we believe, we have faith, but how great is your faith? Even for those who believe, are you counting on God's word and God's power right now? They say you're going through a serious trial, you're suffering, but are you despairing? And if so, where, where's your faith in God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love him? I mean, do you, do you doubt his promise or his power to make that true? Or maybe right now you're struggling with sin and you feel powerless to do anything about it. You, you almost feel like giving up. But where's your faith in God who promises to provide the way of escape with temptation to help you endure? I mean, do you, do you doubt that promise or do you doubt his power? To make it happen? And you see, we, we too need to hear this just as much as the first disciples did. For even though we believe, we too can suffer from a little faith. Have faith in God. We too need God's power working in our lives and God's word working in our lives if we're to live for him. Now speaking of believing and speaking of uh, God's power, This leads Jesus into teaching on prayer. Because believing just so happens to be the first requirement for powerful prayer. And that is our our number one. The first requirement for powerful prayer is believing. Prayer is the means that God has given us to access his power and his faithfulness in our lives. But it's only for those who believe, as Jesus goes on to say. Read again verse 23 and verse 24. It says, Have faith in God, verse 23 Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his mind, rather in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. The disciples were first shocked at the power that Jesus wielded in cursing the fig tree, but that, that's really nothing compared to the power of God. I mean, forget fig trees. Through prayer, the disciples can move mountains, Jesus says. And when you want to talk power, you talk moving mountains. Now, it is probably obvious to you that Jesus is indeed using a figure of speech such that we should not literally expect mountains to be moving all the time. This is not Jesus giving us the promise that at our will we can change the topography of the planet. But if God willed, you could. That's how much power God has, and that's the point. He's highlighting the power of prayer, which is just the power of God. And if God willed, you could through prayer. Or rather, God could through your prayer because he's that that powerful. And that's the point Jesus is giving. That's why we say prayer is powerful. It's because God is powerful and he can do all things. And if he wills, and if you pray, it can be done. And just as a side note, do you know that there is a future time when God will, will, to move mountains? There will be a time when that's going to be part of his will, to, to do some mountain moving. To be more specific, in this passage, Jesus does not refer to moving mountains, plural. He says, this mountain, it's in the singular. 
whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and moved. So it's fair to ask, what mountain is he talking about? Well, when they were having this discussion around the dead fig tree, where were they standing? They were on the Mount of Olives, on the way to the temple. I told you last time a little bit about the special significance of this mountain. This is the mountain from which Jesus will ascend into heaven. This is the mountain on which Jesus will descend when he comes back a second time. And at that second coming, Jesus will first touch down on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. And when that happens, do you know what happens to the Mount of Olives? If you've never heard before, I'll read it for you. It's from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah, it says, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west in a very large valley, or rather by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You keep reading in Zechariah 14, it's a messianic second coming text. But look, one day it very much will be God's plan for mountains to move, or at least one mountain to move. For now, we wait upon God's will, but realize if God has the power, not just to wither a fig tree, but, but to move mountains, well, then there's nothing he, he cannot do. And the point of Christ's statement is that God has made the same power available to us through prayer. That same power is available to us through prayer. Now, I want to caution you here because there's a danger for well-taught, mature Christians to write off what Jesus is saying in these two verses, not take it seriously. Some of you right now might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, I know better than what he's saying. I know that you, you actually can't move mountains. That's not true. He's just using, you know, figure of speech. And you can't actually ask for whatever you want and get it. That's not true either. So I know better. And some people think this, and it leads them to totally write off what Jesus is saying here. They don't take him seriously, and therefore they don't take prayer seriously. And that's a problem of which you need to beware. And look, there are other people who get what Jesus is saying here extremely wrong in the other direction. I I think most of you know better. For example, there's the name it and claim it crowd. You've heard of them, you're familiar with them. This is found in more extreme charismatic and Pentecostal circles, especially the the televangelists, where they believe that by the power of faith and positive thinking, you can control your reality. So specifically, if there's something you want in life, you just need to to believe that you'll get it, and God has to give it to you. You name it, you name some power over it, you claim it as your own, and it will be yours. You name it, you claim it, lo and behold, it's yours. So you want a new house, you just need to believe in faith, real faith, that it will be yours and and God, he's got to give it to you. And did you want to get over that sickness? You need to confess some, some power over that sickness, claim it, and you'll be healed. Do you want prosperity? Do you want riches? Well, you just need to name it and claim it as your own. It's also known, by the way, as blab it and grab it. It's an alternate term. But I trust and I hope you know better than this. To be clear, this prosperity gospel teaching, it's not from the Bible at all. It's from New Age mysticism. But they love using a verse like this to support naming and claiming what they want as if God must answer their every beckon and call. And what's wrong with 
that extreme. What's wrong with that? Well, there's many things, but for one, they treat prayer and faith as the means to their every desire, but so often they're promoting sinful and fallen desires. This whole mindset that God wants nothing more than for you to be happy and healthy and wealthy is just patently false. God is way more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. And remember, Jesus called us to deny self, not live for self, as we follow him on a road marked with suffering. But these people, they get that completely wrong. They they even get Jesus wrong. They don't view Jesus as their supreme treasure worth forsaking everything else to to find, like that field. I'm going to sell everything. I want to buy this field because Jesus is my supreme treasure. No, to them, Jesus, he's a spiritual guru. He's their ticket to getting all the other stuff they really want in this earth. That new car, the new house, whatever. They get that wrong. And, And bottom line, they just get prayer wrong. Because they leave out one fundamental condition upon which all prayer rests. And that is praying according to the will of God. Praying according to the will of God. Now here in Mark 11, is Jesus giving us a blank check for prayer? The answer is yes. He is. This is a blank check prayer request. It's just that that blank check is worthless unless God endorses it. It's like if a millionaire gave you a blank check. It's made out to cash and he leaves the amount empty. You can write anything you want. It's a blank check and you can go and cash it. But that check is worthless unless the millionaire also endorses it with his signature first. And here's the thing. Jesus really is giving us a blank check for prayer. But of course, God must endorse what we are praying for. In other words, we must pray according to his will. This is fundamental to the nature of prayer as God defines it. Prayer is not how we get our will done in heaven, but how God gets his will done on earth. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's nothing about our will being done. We are to die to self and to submit our will to his will because isn't God's will perfect? Well, you think your will is better than his will? Don't you want his perfect will to be done if you're his true follower? Of course, it's always best. It's like you're on a boat and you've got a rope. It's tied to shore and you're pulling the rope and so you're pulling yourself into shore. But don't get it backwards. You're not pulling the shore to yourself. You are being pulled to the shore. And in prayer, we're we're not trying to pull God down to our level We are actually being pulled up to his level. We are being conformed to his will. That's the point. And Jesus placed a huge emphasis on this. As I said earlier, during his final week, he taught so much on prayer. Now, why? Why is that? What's so special about the final week? Why is he telling them so much about prayer? Why here in Mark 11 is he telling them about about prayer? Well, because the time was coming when Jesus wouldn't be with them anymore. They're not going to be able to rely on Jesus and his personal power just whenever they want it. He's not going to be there. But they still have a very much impossible work to do of make disciples, convert sinners, spread the gospel in a hostile environment. They can't do that. They don't have that kind of power. They're just a bunch of fishermen. So where are they going to get the power they need to just live the Christian life and spread the gospel? 
Well, the answer is from God. How? Through prayer. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through prayer. And guess what two topics dominate Christ's upper room discourse in the night before his death in John 13 and 17, or 13 through 17? The Holy Spirit and prayer. He's about to leave, and so he's just unloading all the things they need to know about what they need to, to go from here, to keep going, to keep living. Holy Spirit and prayer. After Christ leaves, the Spirit will come, and then through prayer, they can access the same power through the Spirit. God has all the power they need. They have nothing. He has it all. And so if they're going to do this work, they're just going to live the Christian life, they're going to need to access that power. And so they're going to need to pray. And that's why Jesus taught them so much about the need to pray. It's like a power drill. You can do a lot of work with a power drill, but you can do no work with a power drill if it's not plugged in. It becomes worthless if it's not plugged into the wall. And we as Christians, we don't have the power in ourselves. We're just the tool you have to plug in through prayer. Do you realize prayer is not a right? No one has the right to pray. No one. It's a privilege. And God has granted, by his choosing, the privilege for us to be able to pray and even make requests. You don't get to do that. He lets you do that. Why would God do that? Why would he give us access to him, to his power through prayer? Well, it's obviously to accomplish his will and his purposes, and we get the joy of participating in that. And that's why Jesus always placed a huge emphasis on praying according to God's will. What Jesus says here in Mark 11 about praying for all things in faith, he said all the time, and specifically included his condition of our prayers being according to his will. Let me read you a handful of verses from, from that final night. This is the night before his death in the upper room, John 13 through 17. And here's what he says about prayer in the, that, that final night. John 14, verses 13 and 14. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, that's a big if, he says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John chapter 15, verse 16. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. John chapter 16, verse 23. He says, in that day you will not question me about anything, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And let's just throw in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Notice, all these verses, they do. They offer the same blank check. Ask anything. Ask whatever you wish. But of course, that request must be endorsed by God according to his will in Christ's name. But if it is, then it will be granted. If you ask, you will receive in his will. Do you get that? And do you really believe that? If you understand that that concept, that truth, you really believe that? 
See, I'm trying to help you avoid both errors here. On the one extreme, you've got the name it and claim it people who treat prayer like rubbing the magic genie lamp to get whatever their heart desires, which is not the case. But on the other extreme, sometimes you have well-taught Christians and they downplay what Jesus says about prayer to the point where they think prayer doesn't even matter. You can't really move mountains. You can't really get what you want. And with God's sovereignty, what's even the point? But both of these extremes have it wrong. Prayer is not the ticket to your every heart's desire, to your will being done. It's not. But prayer is also not a sham. Think of God like your heavenly father, because he is, and you're his child. And like any good father, he loves giving good gifts to his children. And he stands ready to give them, maybe not necessarily what they want, but what they need, if they ask. And to receive God's gift, you must ask. You have to pray. He says. And as Jesus says in Mark 11, the point is you have to pray believing. You have to pray in faith without doubting God or his power or his goodness or his word or his faithfulness. Remember Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? It's kind of like James James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Prayer is not a shame. You have to ask. You have to make your request known. But okay, you do not have because you do not ask. Does that mean I can just ask for that new car and and my Heavenly Father, who's good, he's he's got to give it to me, right? Like, why doesn't that work? Well, like James 4 goes on to say in verse 3, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the point is this. If your prayers are focused on worldly desires, don't expect much. Because God is not going to hand his children over to the enemy. He's not going to give them what actually harms them, what, what is actually bad for them. But pray according to his will which is always for your holiness, your sanctification, your Christ-likeness. And you can be so sure that he will answer that you can cash that check immediately. And like verse 24 says in Mark, there's a sense in believing your prayer has already been answered before it has when you know it's God's will. The Hebrews rightly believed that God was so faithful they could regard his future promises in the past tense. Like it's, it's as good as done because God promised it and he's that faithful. So like Romans 8.30, you're as good as glorified. I mean, you're not glorified yet, but it's spoken of past tense because, I mean, it's going to happen. If God saved you, you're going to be glorified. So you're as good as glorified. And you must have this much confidence in God, in his power, in his word, in his will. And you must pray that way in faith, not doubting him in your heart. 
And with the little bit of time you have left, I want to squeeze in just an example. So you see just how practical and powerful this prayer needs to be in your life. So let me ask you this question. Are you struggling with any sin right now? Great or small? Is there some sin area in your life that seems to get the best of you more often than not? It could be anything. Fear, anxiety, doubt, lust, anger, whatever. Whatever it is, what are you struggling with? So now let me ask, what have you done about it? You've got some sin that's nipping at your heels, so what have you done to overcome it? You say, well, I try and repent, but then you you go ahead and you commit the same sin 30 minutes later. So what are you going to do about it? This happens over and over. Some of you might feel like you're, you're despairing, like what can be done? Some of you may even be doubting your salvation because you keep sinning over and over and over and, and nothing ever changes. So what have you done about it? There are many steps we need to take to practically overcome sin in our life, such as daily repentance, making no provision for the flesh, scripture memorization, so on. I mean, there, there are things that God tells us to do in the fight against the flesh. But have you prayed? I mean, think about that. When was the last time you prayed earnestly for God's power to help you overcome your sin? Same, pra- same power that can move mountains. When, when have you prayed for that? And I'm not talking about some cheap prayer where you don't even mean what you're saying, you're just going through the motions. I'm talking about the type of prayer Jesus says here. You're asking God in full faith, believing that this request will be granted, taking assurance in his power as if it's already been given. Lord, Please work in my life through the Holy Spirit to overcome the sin, to deny my flesh. Show me that way of escape every time when temptation comes. When was the last time you earnestly prayed that without any doubt? And for some of you, doubt might be the issue because you feel like you're losing a war with sin for so long, you doubt if you can change, if you can ever stop doing this or that or ever honor the Lord with your life. But like Jesus said, have faith in God. Uh, have faith in God. Do you doubt the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit if you're a believer? Do you doubt God's word and his promises to help you overcome sin and temptation if you rely on him? Do you realize every time you have victory over sin, it's not even you, but it's God's grace working through you? So do you doubt the reality and the power of God's grace? I mean, if your answer there is, is actually yes, if you find yourself and your heart actually doubting, well, it's no wonder that you still see very little spiritual power running through your veins. God has the power, all power, even to move mountains. His grace is sufficient for you, but are you asking for it in faith without doubt? Take Jesus at his word and realize that such a prayer is endorsed by God. Hey, that's one area we know that's according to God's revealed will that you overcome your sin. So, so pray that. That's just one example. You now can take what Christ is teaching here and run with it yourself in your own lives. Are you depressed? Well, then pray for joy. Are you weak? Pray for strength. Are you persecuted? Pray for courage. Are you tired? Pray for endurance. And the great thing that Jesus says in verse 23, that this prayer, it's open to whoever, anyone, who opens the door 
by prayer will find an answer for believers. If you know him by faith, all you have to do is ask if he is your heavenly father. But maybe now when all is said and done, you say, okay, I hear this, I get this, but I don't think I have that much faith. Maybe you're like the disciples whose faith can be described as little. Well, here you need to be encouraged because God's grace is sufficient even for those who have a little faith. Remember, we're not talking about faith in yourself. Forget that. There's none of that. We're talking about faith in God. So get to know his word and his will and believe it. Look back at the power he already displayed in saving you and realize that same power is available to sanctify you and so pray for it. In addition, it's not wrong to be like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9. Remember that story from months ago? But this boy, and he's terribly afflicted by this demon. It's really trying to kill him. The disciples show up, they try and cast it out, but they can't. And why not? Because they had a weak faith. They were relying on themselves and not God. To them, it was as impossible as moving a mountain for that demon to come out. Later, Jesus told them that that demon can't come out by anything but prayer. That's a big surprise, right? See, they failed to rely on God and his power through prayer. They just relied on their own power, and so nothing happened. And we will encounter the same lack of results if we likewise don't trust God. Meanwhile, this, this boy's father, he was still left desperate. So he runs up to Jesus, and you remember what he asks him? Mark 9:22. he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can? He says, All things are possible to him who believes. Verse 24, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that's just a perfect response. His faith was there, but he acknowledged his own weakness and even asked for more faith. And you can bet that God will answer that prayer when it's asked in earnest. So maybe that's your prayer this morning. Lord, would you just increase my faith so that I am praying more for for everything that I need to do in life. Lord, help me to trust in you, your power, and your word more. God will hear that. God will answer that. But again, you must ask and you must be believing in him. Well, I told you at the beginning we would cover two essential requirements for powerful prayer, but we've only covered one. The first is believing, verses 22 and 24. The second is forgiving, verses 25 and 26. But in my study, I found that the second one is so significant. We're going to come back next week and give it our full attention because forgiving, well, I probably don't need to say it, is that important to learn about. But for today, I just want you to focus on this first requirement. You need God's power in your life. It comes through prayer, but first, you have to be believing. Believe that by prayer, all things are possible. And then in prayer, believe in God's power and in his word and he will hear you. Why don't we do that right now? And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our desire. And Lord, make that more of our desire because so often we, we do want what our own self wants. But teach us, Lord, more and more to deny self like Christ called upon us and to, to live for you, to live for Christ and his will as we follow him. We want your will to be done because your will is perfect. We've seen what our will gets us. Our will has fallen. And it leads only to greater sin and suffering. But Lord, truly, your will be done. Teach us more of the power of prayer. We, we confess our faith in that power. You are the God of, of creation. You made the entire world out of nothing. You made us. You, you remade us with salvation, that, the miracle of new birth. How can we ever doubt that power? But Lord, how often we don't rely on it. We act as if it's not there for all the stuff we have going on in our lives, whether it's sin or suffering or sickness or just living the Christian life. Lord, we need that power and we pray in faith for it. Help us to rely on you more through prayer, tangibly, without doubting in our heart. Give us a greater vision of you. Give us a greater vision of your past acts and as we remember what you how you've been so faithful in the past we can bank on that for the future and you are trustworthy lord we count on you we pray for your power in our lives all the time especially today as we leave from here and go forth empower us to live for your will in christ's name we pray amen